This is an ABC podcast. You know, I remember seeing both my parents on stage in, in fairy tales. And there was this fairy tale in which my father played a devil. And then after his scene, kids would throw lollies at him, sort of half punishment, half fun. <laughs> and he would, uh, still finishing his speech, collect as much as he could into his pockets and into a folded jacket. And I would always... As soon as the bell rang for the interval, I'd run to his dressing room because I knew there would be a pile of, you know, variety of lollies uh, waiting for me there. So, yeah, that's, that's how I was bribed to yeah, hang around theatres. I'm Elizabeth Kulas. Welcome to Days Like These. Jacek Kuhlmann grew up in theatres like this one, in the southern town of Bielsko-Biała, as the second son of two actors performing their way around Poland of the 1950s and 60s. But Jacek's own path to becoming an international actor would have enough twists and surprises to fill its own script. And probably a sequel or two. And it begins with Jacek as a young child, deciding that the thing he loves most is not acting, but language. I loved the idea of another foreign language, and with quite an enthusiasm started learning Russian. This is communist Poland, after all. The Soviet Union rules with an iron fist, and no decision is made without going through the Kremlin first. It dictates what you wear, what you say, and where you work, all in the service of Mother Russia. And as a kid and into his early teens, Jacek is an impressive student of Russian language and culture. The sound of it, the melody of it. I loved uh, Russian you know, <laughs> literature that I was becoming slowly uh, aware of and, and their art, you know. But in his final year of high school, Jacek agrees to be part of a school play. Despite his family background, he'd been fairly indifferent to the theatre. But now, on stage, the joy of performing hits him with full force. Because when I finally allowed myself that possibility, I, I loved it. I was immersed in something I was denying myself uh, all my life, almost. So Jacek follows in his parents' footsteps. He enrolls in drama school in Lodz. And for four years, he does what young drama students do. He studies, he rehearses, performs, and he goes out drinking. And after one such night, he and a friend are making their way home together. I think we fell asleep on the <laughs> on the benches at the tram stop. I came too when I was being dragged to the police car, and uh, and he was too. So we were taken to what was then called <laughs> the sobering chamber. Is the, the most direct translation is Bavitrzewin. In Poland at the time, police could remove anyone from the streets on a charge of public drunkenness, holding them in a cell overnight while they sober up. A compulsory blood donation is taken, and the fee is more than two days' wages. You're just given a, a bed in a big hall of, say, 30, 40 beds. So you see these kind of snoring gnomes, fumes of alcohol are just so thick that you could probably get drunk by just breathing for for a minute in there. It's annoying, 
but it's also mildly amusing. Jacek finds a bed and falls to sleep with the knowledge that it'll all be over in the morning. It wasn't so funny when I woke up and I realised I'm, I'm the only one in that hole that we were 40 strong, snoring in unison, and now I'm by myself. But they said, no, you're staying. Why is everyone gone? Well, they're, they're gone and you're being picked up by someone else. Then I was taken in a car to a separate place, establishment, another cell. I'm dying of thirst. This is not the great experience when you're severely hungover. And eventually I was taken up into a room and sat in front of a desk. There was this young guy. I refused to say anything until I got a bottle of mineral water. and So he obliged. It was really pleasant, you know, with a sense of humor and... I guess he was being the the good cop. Because I kept asking, what is this about? You know, I already told you five times what happened, what I remember. They asked me also what the the atmosphere was like at uh, drama school, film school, the only film school, so, you know, a breeding ground for dissent. The questioning is vague, but the intent is clear. They're secret police and they want information. But Jacek has nothing to tell. Eventually, they let him go home, but they keep calling every few days, hauling him back into their office for more interrogation. We went through it again and again and again, and the same desk and, and the same mineral water. They lecture him about the behaviour of a model socialist citizen. At one point, they try to intimidate him with specific mention of his father. And then slowly, piece by tiny piece, Jacek figures out what's going on. They eventually mentioned that The friend of mine who was arrested together with me had some flyers on him that were against the the government. And I wiggled again, you know. I wriggled like an eel, yeah. They've got this slime, you know. Anyway, so I did that. I oozed slime and and talked bullshit. Well, not not, wasn't such bullshit. I claimed uh, ignorance. And they said, well, think about it. You know, whenever at any point you, you think something is worth telling, please do not hesitate and that I would be rewarded, you know. You'll always have enough for a coffee and a cake. But informing for Jacek is not an option. And his instincts kick in. I knew not to agree and, and to, to use calm, you know, believable arguments why I'm useless to them. Not that I refuse on moral grounds, but to say, you have no use for me and therefore let me go. This friend of mine, by the way, a few months later was admitted into a directing course, which was extremely hard to get into. So we kind of stopped talking. I could not trust him. (laughs) I could not trust anyone. It seemed so impossible. Friendships often would (laughs) end in suspicious circumstances like that. Jacek is finally released, and they stop calling for now. But he's rattled. Soon after the encounter, he gets a lucky break. He's offered his first professional acting job 
back in Bielsko-Biała, the town where he was born, with its theatre, modelled after a mini Viennese opera house. He starts appearing on the same stage as his parents once had, roaming around backstage just as he'd done as a child. Jacek's in his early 20s by now, busy rehearsing and performing. Life is mostly good. But there's this constant, you know, undercurrent of, not dissent, but dissatisfaction, and particularly the inability to to travel. That was just, you know, a, another kind of, you know, painfully felt, you know, part of the oppressiveness of the situation. Around this time, a book is circulating among Jacek's friends, each person getting through it in a few days and then handing the copy on to the next person. It's called Mail to the Never Never, and it's a travel diary written by a Polish author who'd made his way around Australia in the 60s. It speaks of a huge place with vast skies and exotic flora and fauna, and it captures his imagination. Friends had joked for years about doing a runner, but now all the elements just seem to align. Njacek and his brother decide that it's time to try to make it to the West, and now they know where they're headed. It's impossible to apply to resettle in the West from inside Poland, but travel to Austria is possible. And each night, a train crosses the border, packed full of people with the same idea. That train would always come back empty, (laughs) and then the next night, again, be full of people with backpacks, family albums and, and, and diplomas of finishing schools and courses, you know, anything that can be useful. And, and yet you're saying you're going for a skiing holiday. And that's how Jacek and his brother find themselves one freezing February night in 1981, bidding goodbye to their parents at a regional train station. Once in Vienna, the first few weeks are difficult. They sleep rough and pilfer food to survive. Soon, they make contact with a friend of their mother's, and he allows them to stay with him as they work through the application process. Eventually, they're summoned to the Australian Embassy in Vienna for the first interview, and Jacek's called into the consul's office first. And we knew we had to push the idea that, that we are, you know, useful, at least in the simplest possible way, like in physical work. And so as she was flicking through my papers, she said, oh, you, you went through... A, Drama school. Yes, yes, drama school. But but my interests were always, you know, in seeing kind of effects of physical effort, you know, something tangible. She said, but yes, you, you finished the course, yes? Yes, I finished the course, but, you know, like painting houses uh, or, or even learning to lay bricks, that would be my passion. <laughs> I insisted. And she, she said, do you know any songs, like folk songs? And I said, yeah, I yeah, I do, I probably do. Sing me one. And I just burst into this, you know, trained kind of baritone. Kuma sobie siedziała, motek nici zwijała, kum dziwował się kumie, kum dziwował się kumie. It blasted through the whole embassy. The door to the office where we were sitting opened and all these people sort of rushed in and looking, is everything okay? Was she stamping the paperwork? I wish she got up on her desk and (laughs) danced. We we would have skipped the the two remaining interviews. (laughs) 
But the interviews and the paperwork and the medical checks just keep coming. Some weeks there are odd jobs, they make friends, go to parties. But others, they're left with nothing to do but sit in front of the TV to conserve energy, watching Western movies dubbed in German. Ten months pass this way. And then suddenly there's a, there's a letter saying, you know, your flight is on Wednesday from Vienna. The life they've pulled together has to be packed up overnight as they prepare to board the longest flight that either of them have ever taken. On the evening of December 3rd, 1981, Jacek and his brother land at Perth Airport. The skies that we read about, you know, presented themselves immediately and there were tens of millions of stars. You know, birds that you never heard before, smells. People use different colognes. The different chemicals are being used to clean the liner at the airport. Sun tanning lotion. <laughs> the plants, the smell of them, the look of them. Things that we knew as, as little, you know, pot plants at best in Europe. Here we saw as, you know, magnificent trees. We, we are in euphoria, like up to 11. You know, those dreams come true and incredible. Ten days after their arrival in Perth, martial law is introduced in Poland. It happens suddenly, as if they've slipped through a closing door. Phone calls back home are no longer possible. Letters are delayed, and when they arrive, it's clear they've been checked by the authorities. Poland becomes a faraway place, sealed off from contact with the outside. Jacek has no choice but to get on with building a life in this new place. And so he hustles. He takes English classes, sells fruit around Perth, enrolls in a science degree. Trying to cram organic chemistry while selling bananas at a dollar a bag. The bananas, dollar a bag, you know. After a few years of this, he meets a couple of Polish actors who'd also recently arrived in Australia, and they start working on some material around their day jobs. To their surprise, they're given some arts funding to stage a few short Polish plays, and a little theatre company is born. It's slow going, but momentum builds, and by the late 80s, Jacek's working with the Antel Theatre Company in Melbourne, and he's performing professionally again. I stifled those you know, desires for, for a few years because I saw it as impossible. And it's possible. It's possible and it's proved to be possible. It's been 10 years of rebuilding his acting career from scratch. 10 years of getting used to this new country, of being on the other side of the world's dividing curtain. And then, almost overnight, it lifts. The national anthem of what was the USSR. I am terminating my activity as president of the USSR. None of us ever thought it possible. You know, us who, who have seen it from the inside, you know, found it shocking, Im- improbable. And yet there it was. As we stand here, the Communist Party that's been so dominant since 1917 is dying before our eyes. Firework after firework in blue, white and red... The colours of the new Russian flag is ready, flying from the flagpole above the Kremlin. With the fall of the Soviet Union, the world opens up again. 
Jacek returns to see his parents for the first time in more than a decade, in and out of Poland. Travel, freedom and movement are all possible again. As the world finds a new equilibrium, back in Australia, Jacek is now working for the Belvoir Street Theatre in Sydney. And at the end of the 90s, a phone call comes in from a man named Baz Luhrmann. He's directing a new film. Working title? Moulin Rouge. He asked what I thought about me possibly playing the unconscious Argentinian. So yes, that was a wow. (laughs) It was to be one of the most expensive films ever made in Australia. No detail of the production goes unnoticed. Jacek is sent off to learn the tango from two professional instructors. And as for his singing voice, he'd already taken care of that part himself. In the shower, I started practicing this Mongolian throat singing. (laughs) (laughs) I was always mesmerized by this kind of harmonic singing. You know, one voice sings the, the main part, but also the kind of harmonic, which is high above it. I gave a sample to, to our musical director. And I said, would you find a use for something like this? And he said, oh my God. <laughs> yes. And that's, that's the kind of voice that's used in, in Roxanne, I sing in the movie. It would become one of the core scenes in the film. Jacek as the unconscious Argentinian, stalking the stage infatuated and menacing, reinventing the Sting original as a duet with Ewan McGregor. It would feature on the film's soundtrack, selling millions and millions of copies. And it became the kind of song that takes on a life of its own, heard on buses from Sydney to South America, used in Olympic ice skating routines. For Jacek, roles in big films follow. Children of Men, Romulus, My Father, Baz Luhrmann's next epic, Australia. And then, in the mid-2000s, Jacek is approached to sing again. He hears through a friend about a group that's forming around a subgenre of Russian music. It's called Blatniak. Like, the main thrust of the, of the genre are the songs sung by prisoners, by criminals, by political prisoners in labour camps. And it's all about jail, about how your mum warned you not to hang out with thieves, about revenge. So it's this, this kind of crime ethos. Blatniak is the music of the underclasses. It's looked down upon. In the Soviet Union, it was best not to mention it at all. But Jacek had enjoyed this music as a kid. Bands with accordions and violins and banjos would perform in the central courtyards of apartment buildings, and audiences watching from their windows would toss down little parcels of coins wrapped in paper. And now, Jacek becomes the frontman of a Blatniak band born in Melbourne. They christen themselves Volgograd, and for months they get together to rehearse. In returning to his rusty Russian, Jacek is picking something up that he'd deliberately left behind decades before. Because all those years ago, as he'd grown from a teenager into a young man, the political reality of life in communist Poland had dawned on him. 
I don't know what age you are when you become aware, you know, painfully aware of it, the big brother over the border, their kind of power over what was going on in Poland. You know, the Russian army was stationed in, in Poland, all over Poland. So there, was, there wasn't even a question of kind of coming over the border to intervene. They were there to intervene. And once he'd seen the system of Soviet control for what it was, the Russian language classes that he'd loved as a kid suddenly looked very different. I realised <laughs> I'm actually learning the, the language of the oppressor. I didn't yet subscribe to the idea how good it is to speak the language of your enemy. And, and being a fantastic Russian pupil... You know, from the moment I, I realized what it was, what it meant, that we were being groomed, I, yeah, rejected it and was the worst in the class. But now here he is, all these years later and half a world away, singing in Russian and joyfully rehearsing the songs of the Soviet criminal underworld in a friend's sunroom. And it's all just a lot of fun. But then these guys said, OK, we're, we're ready to play somewhere. You're ready? Jacek? Uh, <clears throat> and I immediately cold sweat, you know, ran down my spine. It was definitely different to sing with an assumed character. Here I felt it was me singing, Jacek, Coleman, standing in front of a crowd of, you know, panthers and, and singing. There were people standing and, and staring at me, staring at my, you know, molars. I, I don't think I opened my, my eyes once. The birth of Volgograd, it sort of roughly corresponds with the time I, I kind of slowed down with performing on, on stage in theatre. So perhaps, you know, there's this need for, for a, a joy of live performance, and that gets fulfilled on stage with Volgograd. Volgograd has been together now for more than 15 years, rehearsing and performing around their other commitments. They've played gigs and festivals and they've toured Europe. Jacek out the front, in a blue and white Breton striped shirt and a little red pocket square, performing with pluck and presence in Russian. I often talked about, uh, you know, the, the revenge on, on the Russians. That's, that's obviously a bit of a joke. A lot of that material is, is you know, more or less explicitly anti-authoritarian and... I must say I have a, a vein like that. Jacek's latest act. Just a few years ago, he's offered his first part in a Polish film, playing the role of an artist who's gained success abroad and then returns home. 
Yeah, then there were some series, more films, you know, like a trail of little surprises. I often laughed at that, you know, as opposed to my typical roles in Australia where, you know, we're usually playing crooks or mean guys or, or gangsters or, you know. I, I go there and, and I would be a public prosecutor, a, a chief surgeon of a hospital, you know, a, a professor at the university. <laughs> so, so on the other end of the spectrum, I think the spectrum has kind of, you know, over the years filled in on both ends a little bit, thankfully. A couple of months ago, on his latest trip to Poland, the film Jacek is working on shoots for a few days back in his hometown of Bielsko-Biała. One of the locations is that very theatre he'd grown up in, modelled after a Viennese opera house. And walking through the same foyer and backstage that he'd explored as a kid, he runs into an old friend. There was this biggish prop, an old papier-mâché horse, but, but very old and I wonder if that was the horse that that I remember from my childhood when I was when I was four. I saw another uh, fairy tale where the lead character was this horse. Obviously, it wasn't alive, but I was convinced it was alive. The, you know, the the magic of theater. And then a few days after seeing the show, I saw him in the sort of semi darkness. You know, the backstage. <laughs> And I was so thrilled and slightly panicked that there's this magical horse that it's not moving now, but I know it will again. Um, <laughs> it is a strong memory for me. It's like, you know, another, you know, parenthesis in my theatrical kind of visits to Bielsko-Biała. Are you recognised more on the street in Poland than you are in Australia? I'm, yes, I do feel kind of seen on the streets of Poland and it's a bit of a relief to arrive at Melbourne Airport finally because even in Dubai I get asked, to, oh, can we do a selfie? So you, are you the only Polish TV star living in Australia, do you think? A Polish, yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah, because I would know them there. <laughs> In 1981, leaving Poland, would this have crossed your mind in a million years that you would be moving back between the two countries to perform in the way that you do now? <laughs> God, no, it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? But no, never as a, as a working internationally actor. That's like such a cherry on the cake. Thanks so much for listening to Days Like These. If you've got a story to share, please get in touch. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Elizabeth Coolass, or you can send us an email. Our address, dayslikethese at abc.net.au. Make sure to follow Days Like These on the ABC Listen app or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. We love to hear what you think and it helps new people find the stories that we're telling. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolass. I reported today's episode and it was made on the lands of the Wiradjuri, Woiwurrung and Gadigal peoples. Sound design on this episode by Matthew Crawford. The supervising producer was Tom Wright with help from Sophie Townsend. 
Our brilliant executive producers are Ian Walker and Tom Wright. And our theme song is Yeah Nah by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. See you next time. On the next episode of Days Like These, while some people think that a dream job means making high income, others, like Gila, dream of following their childhood passions. And in her case, that means motorsport. When I was young, I always loved to drive and I used to go to the kitchen and put the plunger in the kitchen sink and pretend I'm driving and changing a gear. But then comes a modern-day revolution. And just like that, Gila's dream of becoming a race car driver seems impossible. That is, until she enters a new world and finally has a chance to get behind the wheel. That's next week on Days Like These. And while you're waiting, why not try another great ABC podcast? Like this one. Hi, I'm Mon Shafter, and I've been out for quite a while now. But even in a country like Australia that has marriage equality... Coming out isn't always easy. I was too scared. He had to tell me. There's always an anxiety, no matter how many times you do it. Innies and Outies is a podcast where you'll hear stories from queer Australians about coming out and sometimes staying in. I knew that he loved me, regardless of who I was. Find Innies and Outies on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.